From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Bellingham, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast, and you just threw me for the weirdest loop, because where is Bellingham? Uh, so it's about uh, 90 miles north of Seattle. I'm up with my son visiting the grandparents for their uh, for the holiday weekend. So we're we're doing this one on on location. Wow, I thought you were trying to show off. Yeah, you're on vacation. You just want everyone <laughs> to know that that even in COVID, Zach Jabal takes his takes his uh, you know his vacations. I mean, I'm literally in the guest bedroom recording a <laughs> podcast, and the, the sole extent of my plans for this time that I'm up here is to uh, be able to take some naps while my <laughs> while my mom watches our watches my son. So you know. It's real. It's real glamorous. I was really hoping you were going to say you were in your childhood bedroom. <laughs> no, I did not grow up here. They, my mom moved up here uh, after I went off to college. Oh, I was hoping there'd be like I don't know, like what kind of posters would a young Zach Jabal have on his wall as a child? Do you want to guess or do you want me to tell you? I, I feel like it would have been like the Constitution. Maybe, <laughs> oh my God. maybe, maybe like a picture of like you know I'm just a Bill from Schoolhouse Rock. Oh my God, you really have. You have the wrong impression. I think also, <laughs> I think also, well, I know you like the rules, man. I think also maybe like a, a picture of you in like a prep school outfit. Oh, I definitely did not go. I went to, I went to public school. Dude. <laughs> I did not go to a prep school. No, I'm kidding. You probably had like what? Like G.I. Joe on your wall? Well, what age are we talking about here? Because mostly it was posters of Ken Griffey Jr. Oh. Really? Oh, yeah. I guess that's yeah, right. That he was a Mariner, sense. right? Yeah, that makes totally. a lot of sense. Yeah, a lot of Ken Griffey Jr. and Sean Kemp because that's those were the coolest coolest athletes in town when i was a kid oh right and you wanted to go into sports broadcasting i did i did not i did not want to go into politics or uh whatever constitutional law or whatever you seem to think <laughs> erica what, erica what was on the walls in your childhood uh, bedroom oh yeah i was like super into all of the characters from stand by me and the lost oh. boys and <laughs> a lot a lot of good late 80s early 90s type films that now even though I have kid uh, my oldest daughter is like the age she could start watching like these movies why was I watching R-rated movies back then I just I don't understand where were my parents it's, it's kind of ridiculous there is no way I just previewed both of those movies to see if they might pay, possibly should not be R-rated movies. no they actually definitely should be rated where they are and why the hell was I watching them as a fourth grader <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Adam, how about you? Do you want to uh, fess up to what was on your your childhood walls? Oh, yeah, totally. We're talking like middle school. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, this probably also speaks to like what I, I guess my parents thought I had a hobby. Uh, I was really into collecting all the absolute vodka ads. And, no. Yep. Oh, my and, God. That's like so prescient. And so and so was my uh, my best friend from growing up, Darby. Who actually does the theme music for Wine 101? Another plug for Wine 101. If you're not listening to it, listen to it, people. But um, yeah, he and I were both really into it. But we were into it to a point where, like, we probably did some not okay things. Like, we would go. So we we both grew up in Auburn, you know. So it's a university. So we would. And our dads were both professors. So we would use our dad's professor IDs to go to the university library and go into the periodicals section, in which they had like old, old, old copies of magazines, and take the magazines and go cut. <laughs> The absolute <laughs> because, that is real dedication <laughs> because they were like ads that were you know rarer or hard to find and there was a whole group of people that was like that were collecting these ads because some of them were like super rare i mean it was, it's actually it's interesting because 
now that I'm much older and have gone to business school, you actually study that that campaign in, in marketing and business school because it's considered like one of the most successful and innovative marketing campaigns of like the last 40 years because of the amount of like in, insane artists and designers they got to, you know, come up with these, you know, absolute New York, absolute, you know, all this stuff. Um it's actually kind of a shame they got rid of that ad campaign. It was just, I mean, it was super iconic. But yeah, that's actually really <laughs> what was on my wall. I think my parents literally thought I was crazy. <laughs> Most importantly, Adam, when did you first have absolute vodka? <laughs> uh, at my bar mitzvah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. You were, you were indoctrinated early. Yeah, I think like someone had it out. You know, I think that the parents had it out to take like shots to be like, you know, congratulations, your son's a man. And I was like, I'll take that. There you go. <laughs> But yeah, then I don't think again, it's been a while since I've had actually like, you know, the classic absolute vodka. I think it's been well over a decade since I've had absolute vodka. All right. Well, absolute folks, you know what to do. Send Adam a bottle. <laughs> He'll throw it in his Vitamix. <laughs> I'm also looking for a, um, a, a grand piano in case anyone. <laughs> <buy it. laughs> I, I, I sure hope you and Naomi did not buy a, a walk up. That would be that taking the grand piano up there might be rough. I don't know where we'd put it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd simply take like a, a set of, I don't know, a treadmill or something at this point. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyways, so uh, on this week's episode, we're going to talk about a, a pretty hot button issue that's been making the rounds uh, on our site, lots of other, you know, mainstream news sites uh, throughout the last week. And that is the politics and positives and negatives of reopening bars. Um, and we're going to talk about bars specifically as opposed to restaurants, uh, just because there's, there's a whole lot of other things that go into the reopening of restaurants. Um, but bars, because, you know, first of all, and, and we're going to define bars for listeners as, as places that of which you go to drink as the primary reason you go. So you don't go because they also make a really great burger and you're going for the burger, but then, Hey, they have a great cocktail program. You go there for the drinks and they operate, you know, as a place that, in which they make the, you know, the way they make the majority of their money is when they are at capacity. Um, the places you would go where you're, you know, shoulder to shoulder with people, uh, there to buy, you know, great cocktails, beer, etc. And the reason we're gonna talk about this is because there's a lot of people who are now saying that bars shouldn't open. Uh, and, and bars are being blamed a lot across the country, especially in certain locations for this second, not second wave, to be honest, but this continued spread of COVID. Uh, so, Guys, I'm interested in sort of, first of all, your take in terms of uh, at this point, if a bar in your area were to open, would you go? Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in. So the bars down in Jersey City, I was, I was down in Jersey City over the weekend and there were so many bars open. All the bars were open and uh, they were all doing either you could walk into the bar and order a cocktail or you know wine or beer. Uh, for takeaway, or you could order it to sit outside on the patio. And um, so I was totally all for bars being open and how can we not, uh, you know, reopen them and make it easier for um, these businesses to do some sales. But man, I got to say, after being down in Jersey City over the weekend and, you know, I went for a drink at one place and there was a big group of like 20 people just all up tight and close to each other, talking, talking, talking for hours. I went to dinner, I came back, 
like three hours later, that same group has now grown to 30 people, just 30 people up in each other's faces, you know, drinking, smoking, talking. And I was like, dude, none of these people are wearing masks. Like, you know, this is this is how this thing spreads. So that made me pause and and give it a second think. Zach? I wouldn't go in a bar uh, without a pretty significant incentive. So uh, I, I don't, to me, the, the challenge with, with this whole thing is that, and it's a little bit to what Erica was just pointing out, my biggest issue with going in a bar is not feeling like I can trust the people around me. Um, and that bums me out, like deeply, deeply bums me out. But the reality is like, it's a little bit true with restaurants, but I think the dynamic in a restaurant is is a little different. You tend to be seated and stay seated and and you're not as you're not commingling. But bars in and you know, to their you know, to their benefit for the vast majority of, you know, our <laughs> our existence have served as a uh as a place for that kind of coming together, commingling, conversation. And it's that very aspect of them that makes them so dangerous right now. And and I just I just don't I just can't imagine it. I, I, it doesn't. It just doesn't seem to me to be something that would would be safe. Um, I wish it wasn't. I think I could see sitting outside and having a drink, you know. But but the reality is, and this is kind of part of what I want to get to eventually, that we have to figure out a model for these bars to continue to survive for the foreseeable future, while also balancing safety. And and I'm not sure that the model that's been introduced of you know trying to limit capacity works because the reality is. You know, I worked in bars for years and years, and it was hard enough to get people to follow the rules when the only rules were like, don't throw shit at the bartender. Like, and we had to kick people out and stuff for that. And and so now when you when you're saying, how do you maintain distance? How do you keep it so that the people who are less comfortable, you know, who, like some people are always going to be inherently kind of willing to to push the boundaries and and take chances and put themselves at more risk. And, you know, to some extent you can't control that, but when you're, when you're trying to create a space that someone who's a little more cautious might want to come into, you know, how do you police that when it's, you know, 30 people and a couple of bar staff, like you just, you get into a really difficult position. Yeah. Um, and we've all seen, you know, God knows all the videos and not just in bars, but just of, of people's, you know, just outrage at being asked to just be considerate of the people around them. I mean, I think – I mean, everything you both are saying, I agree with. I, I definitely would not go into a bar right now. And I think the reason that people are, are very nervous about bars specifically is because, you know, we know from society that alcohol causes you to lower your inhibitions, right? So even just accidentally, right? It's why we don't let you get behind a wheel of a car if you drink, right? You, you do not – you are not you're, – you're not thinking in the same way. And so even if you are someone like us, I could even see myself being in that bar and having a few drinks and all of a sudden just totally forgetting to put my mask on, right? And getting and, and seeing someone I hadn't seen in a while and walking up and talking too close to them, right? Or uh, talking louder, you know, as we all know, volume rises when we, when we go to bars, um, <laughs> talking louder than you would, which, which causes, you know, more moisture to expel from your mouth, which is obviously the droplets we hear about that are, you know, so... Uh, you know, so pervade, you know the the way that COVID spreads. So, I think that all of these things are what make bars really dangerous. Um, and we also know that obviously AC recirculates uh, COVID, and so being inside a bar with an AC blasting, which allows you know COVID to con- continue to sort of stay active in the air uh, as someone else is then talking with their mask down, is a scary thing. And I think it also puts the staff at risk. But I think the problem that we're running into, which you both address, is but what are these owners supposed to do? 
And, and I do think, you know, we have to figure out something, some way that it works in which they can exist outside, but also that is at a, you know, manageable level. Because I have to say like last weekend on Saturday night, I walked around Fort Greene and I walked by a bar that they, they just moved what a pack night would look like inside to the sidewalk immediately in front of their bar. And it, it also freaked me out, you know, because it wasn't like they, they were monitoring because they're like, okay, great. We're making money. That's, that, that's equal to probably what we'd make on a normal Saturday night. So like we need to get this cash because no, there's no, there's no one in the government helping us, but no one was spread out, right? They were all really confined to that space right in front of, you know, the bar, the bar is sort of, I guess, street facing property also because they wanted to get, be able to get right back to the window to order the next drink. So no one's going to like spread out down the block. And also I'm assuming if they spread it, you know, they spread down the block, they might've gotten a neighbor who came out and probably yelled pretty angrily at them. So they were all right in front of the bar and it cre- was creating just the same problems. I see the only benefit is that I guess they're not enclosed. So droplets are more, you know, have more likelihood to go out into the air maybe and not as easily spread, but no one was wearing masks. You know, so I don't know how you fix that because when I have gone by the restaurants, I definitely do think, Zach, to your point, people seem to be a little bit more behaved. Uh, I also think that the spacing of the tables helps with that. But there was a lot of restaurants I walked by where I did see like every time the server came up to people's tables, they pulled their masks up to talk to the server. And then the server walked away and they took their masks off and they were having a conversation with, you know, their friends and they were eating their food or whatever, but their masks were always on when they were ordering at the bar, man. I didn't see anyone even walk up to the window wearing a mask to order. So I just, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a really hard conversation because I mean, we have, we got to find a solution. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we did this article a couple of weeks ago uh, that was looking at what bars in Asia are doing. And in Hong Kong, for example, the bars, you know, they're allowing people to come inside, but you are not allowed to stand. Right. So you have to be seated at a table. You have to be seated. You're t- you have to have five feet of separation there. Um, and uh, in addition to that, there's also rules around. Um, the the types of health checks that you have to pass. So so in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, for example, you have to do temperature checks. You have to sign a health declaration form so that contract tracers can get in touch with you if you were in this bar and someone turns out to have COVID. And like those types of like health declaration forms, like that just because we are in a different country with different rules. Like, I I just don't think that would fly here. I mean, people have a lot of opinions about their about privacy. And even though it seems like it's for the greater good to have um, these like, you know, health declaration forms and making it easy for contact tracers, I just don't think a lot of people going into bars in definitely in some states more than others would be willing to fill fill those things out and, and play ball in a system like that. Yeah, and I think it's it's also difficult because, you know, then you put so much of the burden of of all of this on restaurants and bars that are not really, you know, they're not they're not equipped for that. And and without, you know, Adam was talking about, you know, government support and, and I want to get to that a little later, but in terms of financial support, I think, which is a hugely important piece to this. But the but the problem is even just the logistical support, right, of how do we even, you know, keep track of who's coming in? If we find out that someone who was at our bar on that busy Saturday night has since tested positive, I mean, right now we're we're I think it's pretty safe to say that for the most part across this country, we're doing very little to 
to track those things. And it's not just at bars, it's at most anywhere that uh, most anything that's open. But as a result, it's just like, you know, we're just, we're so ill-equipped to, to face this. And I mean, I, I don't want this to turn into a, a, a a rant about our our country's response to COVID because you know that's, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. there's lots of other back. there's lots of other podcasts there but uh, but I do think that you know from from the bar's perspective it's like you're just asking an in, an unfathomable amount of of establishments that are really not that don't exist to fill those functions to track who's coming in and who's coming out to to provide more health and safety than they do from a food service standpoint and it's just it just is kind of like an example of all these various ways in which we've just left people and small businesses out, like out to dry, because again, you know, at a governmental level, mostly federal, but statewide too, in a lot of cases, there's just been zero interest in figuring this shit out at a, at a larger level. Well, and I think, and I think that's, what's not fair is like, so I also, I don't want this, I don't want anyone listening to this podcast to think that we are picking, that we are picking on bars at all. I think they are screwed. And I, I don't understand, you know, if I were in their position, I'd be thinking the same thing. What are we supposed to do? You're now saying that we're allowed to be open. We had to let go of our staff probably within the first few days of COVID, right? Because as we all know, the margins of running a bar are incredibly thin. We are now finally being allowed to reopen. We are probably not at our full staff capacity. I mean, even at this bar that, I, that I've talked about that was packed, there was only two people there, which is insane. There was someone taking orders at the window and then punching them in. And somehow I think, you know, the, the bartender, oh, sorry, there's three people there. There was one person taking orders at the window, one person who was then passing those orders back to the bartender. The bartender was making them, that person was then bringing the drinks back to the window, right? So, and this is a bar that normally would have, I think on a, on a busy Friday, Saturday night, five or six people behind the bar and they had three. Right. So they, they can't afford it. And now you're saying, but we should also, it should be on us and we should hire people to, you know, do contract tracing and to check people's temperatures and to, and, and, and about, and a bouncer potentially to make sure that people are six feet apart outside on the sidewalk. Like that then becomes, again, I get that we should, I mean, and, and it's not fair to just sit here and say, well, yeah, that is their problem. They should figure that out. No, it's not because no one's helped them up to this point. So we, we, we can't just keep putting it all on them. It's not fair. It's not the way that like the society should exist. It's like, okay, well, it's not my problem. It's your problem. Well, why can't we just say as a society, look, like we want to go out and drink and help them. So it's also on us to be responsible and to also be willing to call out others at the bar and say, hey, like, could you guys mind putting your masks on? Or would you mind, you know, being a little bit further away from my group? But but if no one's willing to do that, then then this is just what happens. Well, and it's a dangerous place where when alcohol is involved and, you know, you talk about inhibitions being lowered, which exactly. maybe makes people more prone to risky behavior in general. But like, look, I've also been working in bars where we had to break up fights. It's not, it's not a an uncommon thing, sadly, when alcohol is involved. And when you think about the ways in which people are, you know, wearing a mask, being considerate towards others, has sadly become a sort of uh, not just a, an inconvenience, but in, for some people, a sort of affront to their individual freedoms that res- that merits. Uh, aggressive and or violent response i think that you know it's it's again it's not fair to put that on the people going to the bar either you know the 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 reality of all this comes down to that i think two things in my in my opinion the first is what we've been talking about which is that some of these things to preserve public safety need to be uh taken on at a level much beyond the individual business but the other one is and to your point adam um and and to some extent what you were saying before erica too about these busy bars 
we need to it needs to be in the financial interest of these establishments to not be packed. There needs to be some sort of support or aid that allows them to serve people, but serve people safely and and packing people in because it's the only way you can keep your business afloat is fu- it was fine in a pre-covid world, but it just cannot be how we as a society handle this. It cannot be the only option for these bars to and other establishments to stay open is to pack people in, you know, totally ignoring what all the science says is the only safe way to be around strangers, which is at a distance in the open air with masks on. And instead we're doing either none or, or only outside. And it's not like, you know, fresh air is a cure-all because otherwise we'd all just be camping out or something. Um, it's just, it's just, we have to, there has to be a, a approach that allows for these businesses to operate at limited capacity. And that, that approach has to involve subsidies from the government, you know, in the way that we subsidize lots of other businesses and have subsidized them through this, this crisis. It just hasn't, and we've talked about this on lots of, of our interviews with bar owners and, and bartenders, you know, and, and other businesses too, in this industry, you know, that, that money has just not found its way into this industry for the most part. I mean, I think also like we need to relax the laws. So I had an interesting conversation. I don't mean relax the laws like alcohol laws. I mean, a lot of these these laws we have about fair play in the alcohol business. So for example, I was talking to a, a brand manager earlier today for a very well-known alcohol brand who was saying like, we have funds we'd love to help give these bars to give these bars that would allow them to build more safe and secure, you know, patios and things like that in the street. Because I don't know what it's like in Seattle, Zach, but here like basically – if you don't have outdoor space already attached to your bar, a lot of um, a lot of neighborhoods and the city is, is, is fast tracking these permits are allowing you to commandeer like two to three parking spaces that would be that, you know, technically in front of your business and, you know, make a sort of area that then people could stand in when they're being served. Right. The problem is that for a lot of these places that don't have a lot of money, they're just, you know, they're putting out like trash bins or like plant potters. And those aren't really great, you know, lines of, of of demarcation, if you will, right. They're not borders. So people are spilling out beyond them. So like places are getting, you know, well over capacity. But if, you know, if one of these brands come in and say like, look, Hey, we'll, we'll build you a, you know, a beautiful wood deck that, you know, is those three spaces, which you are seeing some restaurants in New York and some bars in New York that have money doing, and all you have to do is, you know, put our, our branding on the deck like once or twice. So it has just has, you know, a Budweiser logo or, a, you know, Jägermeister logo or whatever on, on our deck. Um, but we'll pay for it. That would be of huge help, not only to the bars, but in order to kind of have crowd control, because you'd have a specific area that people would have to be in. And if it was at capacity in that area, it's like, sorry, we're really sorry. We can't serve you right now unless you want to take your cocktail to go. But the problem is that the laws in a lot of states say that they can't do that because that would be considered as giving a bribe to a business in order for that business to pick up alcohol, you know, to pick up that, you know, their product in sales. But right now, like, can we just be, can we just get over that and let them do that? <laughs> so that yeah. these, these bars and restaurants that have, you know, basically lost everything can have somewhat of a lifeline from, from brands that have made some money on the, in the off-premise during this time. Like that's, I think what's so insane is like, we're, we're, if we're not willing to give, you know, government subsidies, then at least relax these antiquated laws that 
you know, make it much harder for people to do business. Right. And, you know, we also saw along those lines, we've been talking about how it would be great for uh, cocktail bars and, you know, bars and all types of bars to be able to continue to do, um, you know, takeout delivery cocktails. Well, this week, Iowa became the first state to uh, mandate that that's going to be a permanent change. So, you know, as we've talked to bar owners in the past several months, we have realized like that really only brings in about 30% of a, a night's take as compared to where they were before COVID. But in order to allow them to keep uh, operating and, you know, getting through this time, even in a smaller way with a more limited, uh, you know, employee base, at least that's a little thing that all states could participate in, allowing cocktails to go on a more permanent basis, um, you know, as just one of, I think there's got to just be like several things happening here, right? You can do the takeout model, you can, you know, you can do, you know, the the ideas you're talking about, Adam, you can do um, some additional subsidies, there's, there's got to be like a integrated approach to allow these bars to continue operating, like somehow in what looks to be, it could be months, it could be it literally actually could be years that we're looking at. It could. Well, and I think the point you made, Erica, is a really good one, which is that, you know, for a lot of people that I've talked to who are in the, you know, in the bar industry who want to, who want to, who have moved a little bit into takeout or delivery cocktails, the challenge for them is, you know, some of what makes that more feasible is, you know, equipment like uh, canning lines or a vacuum sealing um, uh, uh, machine or whatever. But it doesn't make sense to invest in those things if you're only going to have a few months of selling to go cocktails. If that's a permanent change, then you might say, yeah, we have to put some money down on these things up front, but we can expect to be able to continue to sell cocktails for months, years on end. And so, yeah, I think that adding that that little bit of of uh, certainty that this is going to be a persistent um, and, and continued option as opposed to just, a, well, hey, we know you need to do something, so we'll make it okay for now. But as soon as we return to something like normal, we're going to take these... Uh, this, this venue away so that, yeah, I agree. That's definitely something that could be huge. I think the other one is, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but the other big issue, and we're, we're coming up upon it soon in this, uh, in this country is, you know, we are going to have an, un, a real unemployment crisis if there isn't an extension of this additional $600 a week that has been uh, added on to unemployment for, for people through the end of July. Totally. And when that money goes away, you're going to have the vast majority of, of the, 10, over 10 million people who are in the service industry, in the restaurant and bar industry, who are still out of work because most places are not open or are only open in a limited capacity. Those people are going to have, you know, they're going to be on maybe still some amount of state funded uh, unemployment. But I will tell you, like my state funded unemployment would have been comically inadequate to cover my, you know, the expenses that I have, you know, just my life. Um, and the, that's, that's true for most everyone else who was working in restaurants, you know, that's just not designed to be uh, a full subsistence living. It's meant to be just enough money to get you through till you get a new job. But if right. this industry continues to be on life support, that those jobs just aren't out there, you know? And so, and so we, there has to be a, a thought about it from, the standpoint of employees too, where most of them don't even have jobs to go back to if they would be willing to. And obviously there's real health risks that go along with that. But but it's just, I mean, it's just the inability of, I mean, again, I don't want it to be too, you know, too ranty about our government, but 
the inability of the government as a whole to address this really major sector of the economy in anything like uh, effective or comprehensive way is is really it pisses me off. It just pisses me off too, Zach. Because also, it's just it's this. It, look, Iowa did a good thing, and they actually made to go cocktails permanent, which is awesome. But I think, like again, it's it's this. It goes back to there's just no leadership. And there's no leadership at the top from our federal government. And there's there's not a lot of leadership as well, even in the state governments. And I know there's a lot of people who want to like, you know, sing the praises of, you know, Governor Cuomo here in New York, but like there hasn't been a lot of, you know, strong leadership. Like here's the idea, right? So I, I keep thinking about why this bar on Saturday night was packed and why it felt insane on that sidewalk. And I do remember the bartender who, you know, served someone a cocktail when I was when I was standing there and I overheard say, you know, by the way, this is for consumption here is that, you know, while we are, while we are also, we're letting them sell these cocktails. We're also saying, Oh, but no open container. Right. So like we're, we're the SLA in, in New York is basically saying like, Oh, well, you can sell to go, but we, but no one can open that cocktail and walk down the sidewalk and consume it. Why not? Right. If if that would be allowed, then the bar. So now the bar is freaked out about that happening. Right. And them getting fined because it's all it's their responsibility. A lot of times if that happens. So I've seen, you know, friends of mine who own bars in the city literally posting on Instagram like, you know, if you come and buy drinks from us, please either consume them here or please take them home. Please do not walk down the street and drink them or go sit on someone's stoop. That's just stupid. You know, why can't we just assume that everyone's an adult, relax those laws, and then that would allow for some of this insane amount of gathering to thin out and we could actually keep flattening the curve. But if we – like it's like we want to flatten the curve, but we don't want to flatten the curve because we want to do just enough that makes it feel like we're doing something, but not enough that allows businesses to still survive because we don't want to pay them subsidies, but also that, that allows us to, you know, let those businesses survive while also treating everyone like an adult who can walk down the street drinking a drink. It's infuriating. I mean, it seems like an unwinnable situation. Totally. You know, I just, I just don't see what, what the solution is unless there really is a subsidy, a subsidy situation, I think has to happen. I mean, I think it's, it's at some point the, the government or, you know, support people have to lobby to say, when we come out of this, we need there to be functioning businesses that we can go to. And as a society, we value functioning bars as part of the cultural fabric of of America, right? And unless we do that, there is probably no future for the vast majority of bars who are going to keep limping along and then uh, and then the rules keep changing and there's just no way to know how or when they're going to change or how you can move forward to plan for a sustainable business in the future. <sighs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, it's yeah, it's so depressing. But it is what it is. I mean, like you said, Eric, like there's there's really there really is no solution. I mean, I think every time we talk about this topic, um, you know, from the first month in to a few months later when we talked about stuff like this again to now, we always keep coming back to the same thing, which is like, yeah, we could do all these band-aid things. We can we can, you know, throw these restaurants and bars sort of rotting carrots. But then we're going to beat them with sticks. But the only real solution is the government stepping in and helping. It really is. Like, 
you know, and, and, and in a lot of industries, I mean, it's not, it's not just ours. It's the one we care about a lot because we're all in it, but like in, in the, in the arts, I mean, I keep thinking about, you know, people I know who are musicians and actors and, and paint and like, they're all screwed too. And writers, like it's, there's a lot of industries that, and the government has to step up and help all these people. Um, and if it doesn't, then we are going to be in a really bad place in six to 12 months. We really are. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the biggest solutions here is vote these fuckers out because they are, they are basically being unwilling to do anything to help normal people in this country. So I think it's time for them to go. Yeah, I agree. Oh boy. Well, I was hoping this would leave me in a better mood for the holiday weekend, but. (laughs) Sorry, Zach. Look, man, I think, no, but, but there's nothing better to talk about going into a holiday weekend than how we get politically active in order to make change in our country. That's true. We are talking about Independence Day here, so you know it's it's time to get more politically active. And look, the 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 drinks industry got incredibly active to fight the tariffs, and it's time and the drinks industry gets active again to speak out. And it's time that anyone who listens to this podcast who supports bars and restaurants and enjoys going to them, even if you don't work in them, gets politically active. Write your city council people. Write your, you know, your assembly members and your Senate members in your state and your governors and your lieutenant governors and write your federal representatives and tell them they need to help. And the problem is that, unfortunately, there is very little that the municipal governments can do without federal support. It's just that just is what it is. And so it's you need to put the pressure on your federal elected officials to tell them that they need to help these industries, because if they don't. Your city can do as much as it possibly can. It won't be enough without federal government help. Yeah, that's very true. So, with that in that note, I hope everyone, uh, you know, listening to the podcast had a had a great and and restful holiday weekend. And for you two who are going into the holiday weekend, I hope you have a great holiday weekend as well. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Adam. And I will talk to everyone next week. Sounds great. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now, for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.